Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Monday, February the 28th, 2022. And this is the next edition of Yes, LSAT Life. We have LSAT, we have life, and for a very special group of people, they get combined for at least a little while. And joining me as always, two of the more prominent LSAT tutors in our group, Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York. And how are, how is each of you today? Doing great. Thanks, John. Uh, as, as winter winds down, getting the, eking the last bit of fun out of it. Oh, I'm loving the, uh, the start of spring here in Texas. Oof. It was 70 degrees this week. We're going to hit. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. Well, it's still cold where I am, but I don't mind the cold weather at all. All right, this is, uh, I think, an interesting day. And uh, I put up a post yesterday announcing what we were gonna talk about, which is the seven habits, if we're able to distill it into that, of highly effective LSAT test takers. But before we put on the record button, we had begun sort of a discussion of what I would call uh, sort of rethinking LSAT prep a little bit. And that's probably uh, a great lead in uh, to, uh, you know, if we consider how to rethink it a little bit, then maybe we can identify what some of the, the absolute essentials are to effective LSAT prep. So, um, Jake, if you were in charge of the LSAT world by decree, <laughs> if you could unilaterally invade all the tutors, all the courses and decree what was happening. Um, are there any things you'd change about the world of LSAT prep generally? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there, there are a lot of things I would change. Um, you know, I, I, I'm gonna start with, um, it's so hard. There are so many things to attack. Let's start with, let's remove all of the post facto explanations of individual test questions from all of the published materials. Whoa. Yeah. Sounds like you're going nuclear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's get rid of them all. Because ultimately, we have two options as test takers. We either use the explanations of the skills in order to derive reasons for right answers ourselves, or we go off to a resource where that explanation is given to us. We offload our responsibility for figuring out how the skill was applied in this particular question. We pretend like we understand some explanation, and we pretend like we understand how to apply that to the next time around. Now, clearly, given the tone of my voice, the latter is less conducive to growth. It's less conducive to uh, successful progress through this content. Um, and the former, though frustrating at times, though difficult at times, though requiring more of your energy, effort, and, uh, and analytical skills will bear real learning fruit. Um, and... You know, this is not just LSAT, by the way. I want to I want to put this out there for all standardized tests, for all academic subjects. I'm sick and tired of having people hand over to students some algorithm, some process by which they can arrive at an answer, 
and have that take the place of real teaching, of real learning. That's not what those things are. Really good substantive learning is creative and it's, um, and it's difficult and, and it produces uh, problem-solving skills that run far beyond the memorization of a process. Well, now that you've got it off your chest, Whew, I'm good. Um, let me just ask you a question before we go to Keith. Actually, that sounds to me like not a bad approach to life in general. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, for those who haven't been listening for long, I'm the father of two small kids. They're nine and six. Uh, and in watching them grow over this last almost decade, I will say that my successes as a parent have come when I have given my kids agency and I've allowed them to try things and to succeed and to fail and to guide and to facilitate, but not to dictate how they go about their lives and how they do things. I'm not going to force my kids to potty train at 24 months because that's what the book says. I'm not going to make sure that they're reading by five years old because that's what I heard on some podcast. I'm going to allow them to progress through life dependent on their natural skills and their inclinations. And when they succeed, I will praise the process by which they did so. And when they fail, I'll help them to find ways to grow and learn from it. That's how it should be. That's how everything should be. So really, when you're saying get rid of the explanations, it's because of the because of what the explanations represent. So I presume that you would be in favor of, uh, okay, you know, you're concerned with question five on this particular test. Here are some of the principles you might consider in order to be able to find your way to an answer. A hundred percent. And if you, you know, I'm not you in particular, but listeners out there in, in podcast world, if you want to go and look at my responses to inquiries about specific questions, on Facebook, on Reddit, on anywhere that people are asking me and read what I respond. It is very rare that I provide an explanation of the answer. I prompt people with skills that they should be applying in the moment and allow and, and hopefully guide them toward using those skills. It's it's give a person a fish, teach a person to fish. It's it's th that's the approach we're taking here. OK, Keith. What would you do if you could change the world of LSAT prep? You could decree it to be recreated in your likeness. What would it look like? You know, I'm, I'm afraid that the, uh, the multiple choice format of the exam itself is completely tainted. And I think that what's required to really rejuvenate this exam is the introduction of written responses. If I can take a 170 score and ask them to explain a flaw to me and expose that he or she has no idea what she's doing. That is a frequent occurrence for me to, to sit down with a high score, ask them to articulate something without the benefit of the answer choices, and then discover that the student truly has no idea what an assumption is, what a flaw is, what an argument should be modeled on. So I think that the real solution is that you have to get students to articulate, not choose. And until the, the test creators are willing to create a format that, that, measures, that measures our verbal skills in that way, I think we will always be stuck with this market where there are tricks that allow you to bypass the skills. 
I just think it's a, a function of, of multiple choice testing, unfortunately. Well, there's the world we find ourselves in, though. Sure. But I tell my students, I don't want you to just pick the right answer. I want you to know what the hell is going on so that in law school, you don't sound like an idiot. How do they respond to that? Some of them fire me and some of them stay with me. I mean, you know, it depends what they want. You know, somehow, Keith, that reminds me of a great line from some movie with Jennifer Anson or whatever her name is, was in it, where anyway, it's about doing the dishes. And she's sitting there with her husband and uh, says, you know, do the dishes. And he says, well, give me a minute. And uh, you know, she's not satisfied with that. Uh, give me the dishes. And he says, well, what's the problem? I said I would do the dishes. And then she said, I want you to want to do the dish. <laughs> wow. That's how I feel too. I want my LSAT students to appreciate the elegance of the exam and the importance of the skills. And I want them to take their eyes off the score for a little while, long enough to actually learn something. Okay. Problem with that type of test, Keith, is that it costs money to grade. Yeah. And but, you know, the bar examiners do it. It's not impossible. There is a written component to the bar exam. Yeah, but you know what? There's all, there are also great technologies in the world of assessment these days that, it, that don't restrict you merely to radio button multiple choice, right? In, in the world of mathematics, they have done a great job at developing technologies where you can have assessment items that are radio buttons or they're checkboxes where there can be multiple right answers and you can grade it that way. They have interactives that are digital where you can order things, where you can have a matrix of answers, where you can have buckets where you put things, right? You can have real digital interactives that can be graded in lots of ways and capture lots of data. And it's the willingness of LSAT to go away from the standard model of radio buttons and onto something more substantive. I mean, look, there's, there's, even, there's even technology out there that can take written answers and seek out keywords, key phrases, um, analogous phrases or, or synonymous phrases to what the right answer has and, and grade them within, you know, fractions of a percent of what a human eye would do. Well, you could give the grader or you could give the grader a head start by highlighting the things that the computer thinks are relevant or irrelevant. You know, one of the things that strikes me about this, this multiple choice format is that it actually allows people uh, with less understanding of what's going on to perform comparatively a lot better, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a, great, there's a great white paper out there about the, the format of multiple choice and why five answer multiple choice is ridiculous. Um, that you don't actually gain anything by having five answers and you you basically do the same job with a three answer multiple choice format but that the grading system is so deeply flawed from from single answer multiple choice that there's so much noise in the system that you can't actually know anything about an individual because there's so much opportunity to backwards engineer things and to sort of work around the psychometrics of the right answer, right? Like I know that kind of answer is false because it uses that kind of vocabulary or that kind of format. And it's a, it's a terrible way to design a, a test, but we've, you know, we've been in it for a hundred years. 
Well, that, that is absolutely right. And it seems to me that, you know, if we're talking about LSAT prep, right, leaving aside the theory of this for a minute, I mean, the face of it, these people are paying you money, they just want to get a better LSAT score, right? So most of them, okay, do not want to come away from the tutoring experience with, you know, feeling like they're better people, you know, that they're going to do better. They, they just want a higher LSAT score. So, so what we're doing essentially is this, is how do we leverage, okay, the characteristics of this, which I would call, well, among other things, wrong answer weakness. How do we leverage their ability to obfuscate what's going on, you know, and the arguments and that, so that we can find our way actually to answer many questions that we might not be able to answer in the absence of multiple choice, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, have a, I have a tough time with that because as soon as you tip your hand to the student and say, we're going to use the answer choices to our advantage, that's all they want to do. And they're, they're, they're not going to do the right thing anymore, right? This, is, this is, was the theory of SAT and ACT tutoring for years, that the math, the math sections of the, uh, of the tests, it was so easy to just use the answer choices, plug them back into the problem and only do arithmetic. You didn't need algebra at all. Just use the answer choices. One of them will work, the other four won't. Yeah, but the LSATs, I, I think, a more complex exam than that. Yeah, but but still, Power Score and Test Masters will tell you to use the answer choices for necessary assumption questions. Negate them. One of them will right. negate them, and one of them will will ruin the argument. You, you think that answer. works? No. I, don't I found. Even, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going to be brutally honest here. I have seen that stuff from time to time, and I have. No, I, I don't even know what they're talking about, actually. <laughs> I mean, I've never made an effort to find out because there's no reason for me to. Here's why it's valuable. If the answer choice is already negated and then you negate it again, you can eliminate the abstraction of the negation. And if you understand how to rephrase the question to accommodate this now negated answer choice, you can actually simplify the logic tremendously. But if you go about negating everything, you create complexity in some answer choices that didn't have complexity. So it's a double-edged sword. It simplifies some answers and it makes some more complex. And the real secret is knowing when to use it and when not to. Well, I'd be well, lying. That, that point is absolutely correct. Okay, right. we see all of these things as tools, okay, which I think they are, they're tools. And we talked about this last time. You know, sure, you've got to do enough work to understand the tool, but the, the more broader and important question is when it's appropriate to use one of these tools or not. Now, let's take this and let's put let's try to put ourselves in the head, the minds, the body, the soul of, you know, somebody who desperately wants not only to go to law school, but to a, a competitive law school and get all these scholarships and they're sitting there getting ready to do the LSAT and, you know, they're probably thinking something like this. Uh, well, you know, the next uh, three hours will determine what happens to me every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year for the rest of my life. But, you know, hey, I'm calm, cool and collected anyway. Now, so a lot, of, it seems to me a lot of what's, and, and there are varying degrees of anxiety, right? And there are different personality types. So 
it seems to me that the starting point in this is probably to pay some attention to what kind of person you are, given that, you know, this is all about a lot of uncertainty, right? I mean, part of the problem is that people are under so much stress during the test that even things they'd be sure of in normal life, they're not sure of because it's in the context of this multiple choice, right? In mm -hmm. other words, they're completely discombobulated emotionally, right? Flummoxed. All right. So let's start from that principle. What's what's a good piece of advice that you would give somebody that's more aimed at them as a person instead of the test to kind of get them pointed in the right direction? One of my bullet points, you know, you asked us to have seven habits of highly effective test takers. One of my bullet points is that when students come to me with unstable lifestyles outside of the LSAT, I, we're done. I mean, I, I can tell the moment that we start studying together that it will end badly because no matter how much work they put into their intellectual pursuits, this chaos that's going on in the rest of their life just tanks them. And it could be overcommitment with school. It could be family problems. It could be health problems. It, there's a lot of different personal things, but having stability in your home life is essential to, to you know, effectively prepping for the LSAT. You know, I've, yeah. I've got that on my list too, right? That, that you, have to, you have to get your house in order first. This requires so much of your mental band bandwidth and emotional bandwidth Yeah, that it's, it's not that you can't learn things when things are in chaos, but they won't stick. They won't stay. You won't get, um, you won't be able to, to wrap it into your everyday thinking. You know, one of my students the other day said something to me that resonated really well with me. He said, these things didn't really become part of my the the skills that I'm learning for the LSAT did not become effective until I wrapped them into my everyday thinking about argumentation and that I went about my day reading things in the way that I'm trying to read these things. This, this made so much sense to me in terms of my background in music and the way that I learn music and the way that I learn technique. And he's doing the same thing with LSAT, which is great, but he wasn't able to do that in prior months because of so many other things happening in his life. Now that he's got his life in order, now that he's feeling stable and confident and secure with everything else, he's got mental bandwidth to commit not just in the hour that he's sitting down and doing LSAT prep, but in all ways beginning to incorporate better thinking into his life, which is what it should be. This, this I mean, this is what we're preaching about learning differently. We're not just learning LSAT facts. We're not just getting better at multiple choice questions. We're thinking different. We are doing different in our argumentation. That makes us better at these questions by virtue of the good work. But these questions should get in, the, the, we should be traveling down that path and the questions are in the way and we knock them down on the way. So, you know, I think this is really absolutely true and i think i would add physical fitness to this as well sure you know because you need you know this is this is grueling hard work so maybe the first principle is forget about the test start with yourself would you agree yeah financially emotionally time management there's so many things that you have to plan for before you 
can take six months out of your life to become good at the LSAT. And so many people try to just jump in and add it to their already hectic lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what do they say? Be the change you want to be or something. Is that the expression? Yeah. All right. So I actually, I agree with you. And I think that this is something that is never discussed is you need to prepare yourself to be the right kind of person to be able to succeed on this. And that's not about the test. That's actually about you. And, right. and that, and I think if we, you know, if we add to that, I mean, I think we have objective considerations, you know, something like uh, regular sleeping and eating and exercise and stuff like that. But I also think there's a second component to working on yourself and that has to do with confidence and attitude and things like that. Well, that's on my list too. All I right. Think- well, pick up that from point number two then, because uh, I think that's extremely important. The only difference, I made this point, you know, when I, you know, I make my occasional forays into the comments uh, in the group that a lot of this is directly linked to confidence, isn't it? Okay. And the LSAT is one way to describe it. In fact, one way I used to describe it, LSAT preparation is largely about learning to make better decisions, right? Because you have to choose among five different answer choices, you know, and that's basically a decision. And when it comes to decisions, there's a big problem. This is something that, you know, for those of you who are disciples of Malcolm Gladwell, I would not call myself a disciple of Malcolm Gladwell, but I do think he has some, some interesting things. And we may have discussed this before, but you know, in the book Blink, how he talks about, you know, the two sort of extreme types of decision makers, you know, those who, you know, just look at something and I'll go here. And those who, you know, agonize for a very, very long period of time, you know, before making a decision. And this seems to me to be a personality thing, right? Mm. You know, it has nothing to do with the test objectively, absolutely nothing to do with the test. Agreed. Uh, And it has nothing to do necessarily with uh you know the physical fitness or the you know this you know these are things that are are you know programmed in people's dna uh, right from day one and i remember reading a book i think it was called the calby connection or something a many long time ago talking about different personality types and you know how they make different types of decisions so what would we say is the principle there know yourself know your weaknesses well you know there are there are a couple of parts i mean uh, we could probably break this into three or four different smaller pieces um i think there is a humility aspect to it that's really important right knowing what you are and are not capable of being open to the idea that there is going to be improvement that there's going to be change that the way that you're thinking is not necessarily the way that you need to be thinking i think that's part of it um but I, but I also think there is a play to your strengths aspect to this, right? If you are good at certain things, make sure you exploit those things, right? If you are somebody who works quickly, make sure that your quickness works to your advantage um, and find ways to you know, make use of it. If you're somebody who is uh, meticulous and organized, make sure that you take advantage of that. So in, in that way, you know, if you're talking about sort of the pre-work that you do prior to diving into... LSAT prep, 
take a look at yourself as a student. Know what you are and are not good at. Know what you can and cannot uh, articulate about yourself. Um, and and have some goals about ways that you need to address your standard practice in order to uh, sort of ach achieve the ends. And of course, the ends are probably unknown to you at the beginning, but at least, you know, some self-examination is, is going to be critical. You know, I've often heard it said that for most, and I believe this to be true, that for most people, their strengths are also their weaknesses. Yeah. You know, in other words, context matters tremendously. Keith, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a perfect segue to two points on my list, because I think that to be good at LSAT prep, you have to simultaneously have two conflicting personality characteristics. You have to be irrationally confident when you are taking time tests and you have to be exceedingly humble when you're studying. And I find that people who have this irrational confidence to take a test without anxiety are very resistant to acknowledging that they might be wrong when they're studying. And people who are very open to learning and to absorbing new ideas and admitting when their skills are inadequate, those people tank on time tests because they just can't bring themselves to say, I, I can do this. I know what I'm doing. And so having both of those characteristics, I just find very few people who can do both really well. It, people uh, tend to fall in one camp or the other. You know, that reminds me of a great line um, out of the end of, I think it was the Godfather 2 movie, where uh, Michael Carleone says, well, I've learned I have the strength to change. Okay? You know, sort of, uh, sort of an acknowledgement that flexibility matters, right? That flexibility matters. Or was it Darwin who said something to the effect of, it's not the smartest who survive, it's not the strongest who survive, it's the ones who are the most adaptable to change, or some, something to that effect yeah. anyway, right? Well, I mean, flexibility is next on my list, right? That fl that flexibility, that, that e the, the willingness and eagerness even to be multiple things at once is so critical. Um, I, I think I think Keith is spot on about this idea of, of of confidence and humility simultaneously. And I think it's a specific kind of humility because one of the things that is so difficult for the ultra confident is that they believe that humility is a negative quality. They believe that humility is admitting that they are less intelligent than they thought they were. Um, and to do that feels bad to them and they don't want to have any sort of negative emotional content. And so they resist it. On the flip side, those people who are humble and willing to learn, they believe that that irrational confidence is uh, a lack of humility and speaks negatively about them and that they aren't being um, analytical and careful and, and, and thoughtful enough. And so they, they resist that because they feel like it reflects poorly on them. And so what we have to do is we have to see the positive in both sides, right? That irrational confidence is not a message to the world that somehow you think that you're smarter than them. It's, it's a coping mechanism. It's a survival mechanism in a situation in which you are being timed and you have to do the best that you can. 
And similarly, the humility about analysis doesn't mean that you aren't as intelligent as other people. It's a positive quality. It indicates a willingness to grow and a willingness to learn. So, so sort of, see... yeah, so sort of like, you know, here you are, and, you know, these questions are coming at you and everything and you're feeling overwhelmed and you say to yourself, you know, it is true that I have no idea what's going on here. But it is also true that by God, I'm confident I can find a way. Yeah, yeah. I can figure it out. It's triage. That's all it is. It's triage. Because your choices are do it the way that you do while you're studying and get to two or three questions. Or do your best on a larger volume. And you know that you're going to get some wrong and that's okay. Because you're far better off getting to 20 questions at that level than getting to three questions in a more confident manner. Well, there's no question about that. And it always seems to me that, you know, in the context of the LSAT and, you know, the problem of everything coming at you and, you know, and that is that a lot of people, I think, feel compelled to think about things for a long time, even if they're uncomfortable, perhaps overthink them. And I've often thought that some of the best advice you can give anybody on this is nothing wrong with getting it wrong really quickly and moving on. Nothing wrong with getting it wrong really quickly. The worst thing you can do is spend a lot of time on it and then get it wrong. And get it wrong, right. Double whammy. That's, that's what you want to avoid. Now, practically speaking, okay, in this context, and this is not you know a principle, okay, but just a practical observation. Um, it is important as people go through the test that if they have any interaction with a question at all, to put some kind of an answer before moving on, because, you know, by doing anything, I think you're going to realize that, you know, there are certain things that cannot be the answer. You don't want to go back and arbitrarily, you know, guess something you knew that you need to be wrong. Right. Um, I also, it also seems to me in the context of sort of the, who you are, you know, if we, if we look at the two extremes, and what I mean is that for people, their strengths or their weaknesses. So uh, may, maybe these are things we've already talked about, but just to sort of emphasize, those who are used to making decisions really, really quickly and are finding they're getting more wrong because of it need to work consciously, I think, on just slowing it down a little bit, right? Just adding some extra, you know, step into what they're doing. Sometimes like reading the question carefully, by the way. Go slow to go fast. I say yeah. that more than anything yeah. else. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And then at the other extreme, and as I say this, I think back this guy who taught for me for years and years, brilliant, brilliant teacher, uh, you know, possibly one of the greatest LSAT instructors I've ever known. But when he did the questions themselves, you know, he was, a, I think, a PhD in philosophy or whatever. He was highly analytical you know, wanting to analyze everything, and it slowed him down. So although he was a very high score, I think he would have been a higher score if he hadn't uh, analyzed so much, right? So there is a, you know, I think there's sort of a, a point of diminishing returns with this stuff, isn't that right? You know, in other yeah. words, you want to go far enough so that you're reasonably equipped to make a decision whether, in, whether the decision is right or wrong, agreed? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I, I would I would take this a step further and say that these two personalities need not go away from what they're doing naturally, but understand that there's sort of a bimodal approach to LSAT prep. There is a time to go fast. And if you're a fast thinker and a fast actor, keep thinking and acting fast under time scenarios. It is when you are in review that you need to learn to slow down, be analytical, and let your let your analysis and the things you've learned inform the way that you act intuitively and act quickly. Similarly, those other people that are naturally inclined to be analytical, don't stop. Do that, but do that in your review and learn to be a different person under timed scenarios and act intuitively. Get used to acting intuitively timed, but keep the thing that you're doing. Keep doing it but do it in your review sessions, not in your time testing. So play to your strengths, but be flexible. Be flexible and do it and, and know when your strength, know when to employ your strength is appropriate and know how to develop the other side of this action plan. Um, Keith, so yeah. I want to ask you a question based on, you know, what the conversation with what, what Jagus has said. Uh, yeah, I mean, all of us, each of us, uh, I think independently and certainly in our group discussions are, have, are clearly committed to the principle that you don't want to be, you know, that you want to understand what's going on and you don't want to be a slave, you know, to all these sort of rules of LSAT, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, Keith, that this sort of slavishly learning, trying to learn these, uh, you know, these sort of micromanagement discussion of LSAT questions. I mean, do you think that they promote or inhibit flexibility? Do they you know, provide, I, I guess what I'm suggesting is it seems to me that it encourages a certain rigidity in terms of approaching the questions. Yeah, um, you know, maybe it's contextual. Some people will interpret that as I always have to do it this way and then it becomes constraining and rigid. Um, but I just told a student yesterday, I'll give him a shout out, Kurt, because he listens to the uh, to the podcast. I just told him yesterday, you know, you could probably benefit from reading a little bit of the Power Score Bible because you have such a good understanding of the logic that getting a more granular feel for the answer choices might help him. And so that's a situation where I don't think he's going to use that advice in a slavish way. I think that he will use those examples to inform the flexible approach that we've taught him. Yeah. So these principles of approach, I mean, they're great servants, but bad masters, right? Yeah. This is back to the yeah. same thing. I mean, you, know, you need to know when to use these or not to use them. And you need to just learn the ones that you need. If you don't need extra tools for certain scenarios, don't learn extra tools for those scenarios. And never forget it's okay to just put the answer without knowing why it's correct. Especially, uh, You know, I tell a lot of students, if you really push me to be honest and you ask me, well, what is your strategy? I tell them I read it and then I think about it and then I pick the answer. And then I go to the next question and I read that one and I think for a little while and then I pick an answer and then I do it again and I do that 25 times and then time runs out and then I do the next section and I don't do any of the stuff we talk about in class. None of it. Right. 
Right. Well, that, the, that's because you know it well enough to not have to specifically do it. I mean, isn't right. that the point? Yeah, that, that's absolutely the point. You work and work and work and work a technique in the practice room so that you can get out uh, at game time and not think about it at all. Do, do we think that Tom Brady thinks about all of the technical things that he does on the field during practice? Or does he go out there, look at the field, find the receiver and throw the ball? Do you think he's coming back next year? No, no, no. He's done. You think he's completely finished? Yeah, what do you think, Keith? He's done. Oh, you know, ever since the, the brain injury stuff has come out, my consumption of football has dropped to about zero. I didn't watch the Super Bowl this year. I held an LSAT class. Oh, that's right. I forgot that. And people showed up? Yeah. You know, a lot of our students are from Canada, and I don't think they could care less about the Super Bowl. Really? Some of them didn't even know what was going on. Yearly ritual for me. Okay. You know, so we've been talking about, you know, more of sort of the who you are, and this is important, right? You know, some external factors in your life, internal who you are. But let's, you know, move the discussion a little bit now into, so here you are, you know, you're faced with a problem of the test, all those materials, you know, being thrown at you. A lot of it's confusing. What are your thoughts on how to sort of stop, get grounded, get anchored, okay, and begin to work your way out of this stuff? I mean, if you had to give somebody you know, say one principle, one rule, something they can always do that's the right thing to do or that's an appropriate thing to do. Don't think. Don't start with the highly technical micro-grained material. Start with the broad brush, right? Think about painting a wall, right? You don't start with the finest paintbrush and do all the little details first. Get the big part of the wall done and then worry about all the edges and all the other stuff afterward. It's the same thing here, right? Worry about how do you do the section? What is it about? What is an argument? How do you read something effectively and efficiently? How do you understand the mechanism of a game? Get that stuff done. And all those prep resources out there that get really technical, and really finely grained, and I'm, you know, we won't mention any of them, but we all know who they are. Um, those, as Keith said, can be useful once you have your feet under you and understand the flexible approach first and the broad brush approach first. But if you don't have that, then all you've got is a massive encyclopedia and no idea where to start looking in it. So would part of that be focus on what you're being asked to do before starting to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it sounds so totally idiotic as I listen to myself say that, but you know, I mean, in a sense of it's so obviously true. Right. But yet it is very, very clear to me. I mean, looking at the, you know, the comments and the group and that, uh, that a lot of people don't do that at all. And, and, and that was to some extent, I think why, um, you know, I guess in our last uh, discussion, you know, we talked, that's part of the effective reading, isn't it? You know, to yeah. be clear on what you're being asked to do. You know, I had a student last night ask me to explain a necessary assumption question. And I asked her, well, what is the question asking? And she said, I think the conclusion is this. And I said, no, 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 <laughs> you've gotten ahead of me. What is an assumption? And 
it was like I dropped a bomb. I mean, like the, the whole room went silent. She didn't have an answer for me. And then when she finally did answer, it was wrong. And I had to pause and say, you can't answer this question if you don't know what they're asking you. You might as well just skip it and go to another question that you do understand. Take a guess. But if you insist yeah, on quickly. reading very quickly, right? Guess quickly. Yeah, right. But they insist on analyzing the stimulus very carefully when they don't even know what they're being asked to do with it. That I find to be really quite problematic. And to their credit, I will say, if you go to those prep resources, they give you explanations for these things. They tell you what a flaw is. They tell you what an assumption is. They talk about what a conclusion or claim is. They've got all this stuff in there, but that's not where students focus themselves. That's not where they dig in. That's not where they spend their time. They move past that. They read it once. They leave it behind them and they go on to the technique parts. Okay, so what do I do in this scenario when they haven't absorbed the important thing? which is, what is this? What are we even talking about? Why are right. we even here? Or they want to get right to the specifics of that, that stimulus and start debating the content immediately without an understanding of the framework that we're working in. Right. The analogy is easy, right? Go to, go to logic games. It does not matter what all the particulars are. If you can't create a board, some sort of scaffold, some sort of framework in which the pieces move. If you don't have that in your mind, if you haven't created that for yourself, you're trying to put together a puzzle that doesn't have a shape. It's impossible. You have to do the same with logical reasoning. You have to do the same with reading comprehension. What are they asking you? What do they mean by these things? What am I supposed to do with this? Don't jump into all those other specifics yet. They're not going to help you because you don't know what they're talking about. You know, the uh, in my experience, the clearest proof that people aren't paying attention to the question or understanding what they're being asked to do with it is if they get it down to two answer choices and they seem equally the same. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's the, that's the question that has the most room for growth because you know that the right answer was there. So you at least understood something, but you didn't actually understand what they were asking you for, or you didn't actually understand the words on the page. Those are the questions you should be focused on. Not the ones where you were lost from the beginning. Get the ones that are on the edge. And this, by the way, is why to go back to the first principle of sort of mental and physical fitness for LSAT prep. You know, this takes a lot of mental and physical energy, you know, to actually do. So, you know, again, you know, you've got to be the, uh, the right person. Let's just stay on this for a second, though, because there was a very interesting discussion in the group last week. I think it was, it was that exactly. I think it was getting it down to two answer choices or something. Do you recall that thread? I do vaguely. And I think I gave the same advice there. I was like, this is the fact that you had it down to two means you did not understand the question or you did not understand the answer choices. And that's something that that you have to dig in much harder on. Those are well, the ones you have to review. I think they've got to at that point, they have to go back and reread the question very carefully. Because that's the only way to choose between, you know, two remaining choices. But if you have it down to two, you I, either either you didn't understand the, the stimulus to begin with, right? You didn't understand the words on the page and you glossed over that fact. You didn't understand the question they asked you, in which case you haven't done your homework. Or you don't understand the process underneath it. 
There is no question for which there are two answers that are equally good. There isn't one. So you must be off base. There's no, there's no you're way you're not understanding what you're supposed base. to respond to. Yeah. 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 There's no, 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 let me ask you this. Okay. I mean, you know, so we sit here and this, you know, I think if somebody were tuning in and listening to this, they think, you know, this is totally idiotic. This is all self-evident. I mean, you know, I want my, I want my five minutes back or something. One would right? presume, right? Yeah. But, but I mean, why, you know, so, you know, why do people not do this? What's your theory, Keith? Uh, wow. You know, I think that there's a lot of psychological oddities to wanting to go to law school. And I think that many people are in this for credentialism. And it really shows when you start to study the nuts and bolts of the language and they don't want to do it. And then, you know, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you don't want to be a lawyer. You want the title or the credential or, you know, something that goes along with this process. But actually doing the work of a lawyer, you don't want to do it if you're not interested in English and argumentation and and learning and reading. That's what lawyers do. I mean, that is yeah. the essence of being a lawyer. You're you're a wordsmith. You're a professional well, reader. Know this, and they can do it in real life 24 seven. No problem. Why? Why do they somehow come apart under the pressure of the LSAT? Well, in real life, they don't have to be good at it. <laughs> you don't have to be a careful reader in real life, typically. You don't have to read difficult, boring things in real life and understand them well. You, you can just fake your way through everything and get someone to just tell you after the fact. Well, haven't we always done that? I mean, isn't that really the problem is that that, you know, depending on how old this student is, whether the student is 20 and still an undergrad or 50 and, and 30 years out, they've spent their life in situations, especially academically, where they've only understand understood half of what they've read. But they've been in situations in which the, the people in charge, the people that are assessing their progress, give them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to demonstrate some arbitrary measure of confidence that they understand the thing, and then they get to move on. And instead of actually learning it, we figure out ways to indicate that we've learned it without actually doing it. Right, to right? fool the professor. You, oh, that's all you do. You try to fool your teacher. Why do I have to read the textbook when we're just going to go over it in class? Why do I have to read the book when I can read the e-notes or the spark notes? Or I can cheat off my friend, or I can at least use their notes, right? Why do I have to do any of the actual work? You have to do it because you love to do it and you want to do it. This is something I, that I tell high school students and middle school students, and frankly, my nine-year-old, all the time. You have to love to do it and want to do it and do it for the sake of doing it. And having done that, the people in charge will realize that you've done that, and you'll get the grade that you want to indicate that you've learned the thing. But the grade is only one small eddy in time on the long river of learning. And it's a river of learning, not a river of grades. Absolutely. Absolutely. At, be at best, at best, 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 it's sort of a third party, you know, evaluation of something in any case. And why would you care what a third party thinks? Um, you know, we're talking about understanding these arguments. And then I just had this, this thought that I wanted to introduce into the conversation. So last week, uh, was it Friday, I think, President Biden nominated uh, Judge Jackson, 
mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. And, you know, those are really interesting. But what I found most interesting uh, was an article in New York Times about her formative years where, you know, she was heavily involved, sounded like the whole time she was in high school and high school debating. And, you know, at its core, I mean, I've never been a debater, but I've known some people who have, and at its core, debating is, is the skill of understanding arguments and, you know, further refining your understanding of arguments as you, you know, move along. And, you know, as I was reading that, I thought, oh, my God, I mean, isn't that the, could you imagine better LSAT prep than debating? That, that's the analogy I give every day that I teach logical reasoning. Imagine you are on stage behind the dais with a panel in front of you at a debate tournament. What is the thing that you are arguing? What is the issue? Tell me that first. Then give me the evidence and the reason why your evidence is good enough. Every day, be at the dais. Imagine yourself at the dais. What is this argument and what's missing? And this is what's missing from- If you get enough at it, you can go to the Supreme Court too. That's right. And I think this is what's missing from LSAT prep. Jake and I recently discovered this Tolman method of argumentation And he and I have been teaching LSAT for well over a decade and are just now learning about this. I mean, you could view that as a failure on our part, but we're both completely familiar with every LSAT, you know, study guide on the market. So if anybody was identifying this as a valuable thing to know, it would be out there and it's not. We're the first people talking about learn the the techniques of debate, learn the models of argumentation. I don't find that in any other resource. They want to jump right to here's how to categorize the questions and here's the trick to get rid of the wrong answers. Well, because this this goes to the thing we were talking about before. You you can either give the people what they want or give the people what they should want. And what people (laughs) what people want is the fastest path from today toward the to the score that I need in order to get into law school. What they should want is Tell me all of the things that I'm going to need between now and when I retire from my career in law. And all of the things that are missing, let's fill in all of those gaps. Where do we start? Jay, are you really prepared to give that time in your $10 sessions? Yes. We try. We talk about this all the time. All the time. Because that's how we experienced the LSAT, or at least I did. I, it, for me, it was an opportunity for me to say, you know, in college, I didn't do that hard work. I didn't learn this thing. And now I'm going to. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to do it now. I'm going to find out what the hell evolution is. What the hell is Darwin's theory? What the hell is all these numbers I've been ignoring for years because I hated math? What the hell is art appreciation when I thought it was stupid. What are these things? I really decided I'm going to go back and fix all of my educational deficiencies now. And that's why the LSAT became so powerful for me. Well, and this this takes me to habit number six, I think we're on, right? We're on five, aren't we? uh, Five, maybe, (laughs) which is is patience. That's a a personal characteristic again, though. It is, but we have to be academically and intellectually patient, right? One of the advantages that the LSAT taker has is that we are not under time pressure 
on the on the larger scale, right? If we go up a level, we don't have to take it next week or next month or next year. We take it when we're ready to take it, right? Thank goodness for today's LSAT takers that we are not in a situation, in a paradigm, where 98% of people that go to law school are K through 3L, right? Like, th that's not the path anymore. The What's the mean age entering law school now? 27? Something like that? Nationwide? Yeah. Something like that. Um, and there are so many in their 30s and 40s. It oh my means... God, I was admitted to the bar before I was 24. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. So, so one of the things that's really important is that we don't have to rush into the process thinking that there's some arbitrary timeline. Start at the beginning because you have the opportunity now to do it right finally. I was the same as Keith. In my undergrad, there was a timeline. I had a degree to finish. So I don't have time to waste you know, doing all this back learning, junk <laughs> learning, right? I don't need any of that. I gotta get I'll my grades and get my degree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now, you know, I'm in my 40s and I have time, and you know, I'm gonna do it right. I want to learn it right. And you, as an LSAT taker, have the opportunity to do this right, so that you don't have to redo the work again in law school, and then again for the bar, and then again as a lawyer. No, start now. Do it the right way now. Be patient. It's okay. And the, and the patient extends be, the patience extends beyond that. It's not just about the big process, right? In the midst of preparation, make sure that you don't get so eager to know how you're doing that you spend all your time measuring yourself and measuring how you're doing and not being patient and confident that the process that you're going through is bearing progress. It's bearing fruit, right? Be patient. It's okay. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. It doesn't have well, to be the next. You make some good points, and I think there are actually two points, but we'll still keep them under category five. Okay. First is that patience is a form of, I think, intelligence and effectiveness. Okay. You know, leaving aside context, I mean, it's Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner. Uh, you know, always has these. Uh, I read his these Twitter things. Uh, you know. He clearly thinks that patience is a virtue and that patience is a form of intelligence and human effectiveness. And I think that's definitely, definitely right. You know, the second thing point you make, and, you know, uh, we've talked about this upside down, sideways and diagonally, you can't hear it too many times, is to understand the relationship between uh, the LSAT prep experience and being able to leverage it into, you know, other life skills, right, that are important for law school and beyond. Okay, so let's move this a little bit into what I would call some lifeline principles. So we can, you know, we have the luxury of sitting here. None of us has to do the LSAT and this sort of stuff. So we can talk about this stuff, but let's put ourselves in the context, the experience of somebody who is sitting there, not exactly calm, cool and collected, uh, you know, feeling a little bit disoriented and let's identify one or two, what I would call, let's throw them a lifeline principle. Okay, something that they can do uh, that is absolutely going to get them pointed in the direction of the answer. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Or perhaps let, let me offer one, in fact, one that I feel very, very strongly about. And that is always concentrate on the things you do know first. Okay, because what I, you know, my experience with a lot of these LSAT people is that you know, they're so upset about all the things they don't know that, uh, you know, they don't 
concentrate on what they do know, and it's what they do know that opens the door to figuring the rest out. Agreed? Absolutely. And you, you can apply that to, you know, if we want to think LSAT specific, you can apply that to games, you can apply that to logical reasoning, right? With games, you, you read a stimulus that you're uncertain about that has thrown you a curveball, fine. Don't reinvent the wheel. You've done a lot of games. You know how to set up games. Do a thing that you know how to do. Answer a question you know how to answer. Do that yeah, or, do, or do the recognize thing. or when you read the conditions, I mean, one of the one of the small mindless points. Well, I mean, I, I do specialize in mindlessness, as you know. OK, but, of course. you know, one of the uh, you know, one of the mindless but important principles when you read these conditions and logic games is you might read them in order, but you don't process them in order. OK, I mean, you process them in order of, you know, degrees of definiteness, you know, and stuff like that. Right. Which is, I think, an example of concentrate on the foundational things that you do know you know you sort of put the stake in the ground or you know if you're reading an argument and logical reasoning focus i know this conclusion you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and i you know as crazy as that sounds that is not my experience of what a lot of people do i mean they're so upset about what they don't know they don't pay attention to what they do and you know for anybody listening if you're feeling extremely uncomfortable like your future is slipping away all your prep work was wasted, all these horrible, you should not be having these thoughts, but some people do. You're having these thoughts, take a deep breath, take a small breath, take any breath, and ask yourself, hey, what do I know for sure right now? Gravitate towards that, because that's the key to digging your way out of the mess, right? Yeah. You know, I saw a, a video, I think last night, of Mike, Mike Tyson. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said, if you think money's going to, you mean the no. boxer? <laughs> yeah, the boxer. He said, if you think money's going to make you very happy, you've never had a lot of money. And that's I remember right. watching that and thinking, well, you know, Mike Tyson, I think that's a credible person to say that he came from no money. He's famous, fabulously wealthy at this point. And I was thinking about what he said and, and how difficult a message that is to consume for people with no money. But Here's the truth about law school. It won't make you happy. Being oh a lawyer. God. Actually, Keith, on that <laughs> note, I put up that that post, uh, that tragic, tragic story. Oh, right. Uh, that um, that young woman lawyer in, in Massachusetts uh, who died recently. And, and for me, it was I read it and, you know, I went, I went to uh, Queens University where she went. I lived near Mississauga, Ontario, where she grew up. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, they were just, I could feel, all, I mean, I could actually visualize this stuff, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, that is a, an incredible example, right, of how, you know, none of these things will even come close to uh, buying you happiness. And in fact, I know it's hard for somebody in their 20s to believe, but you know, the more money you have, the more problems you have in life, I guarantee it. You know, my personal definition of wealth at this point is the ability to live on small amounts of money and be totally okay with it. Yeah, honestly. And and well, same it, thing for law school. You know, you'll be happier if you can be proud of your intellectual achievements without that degree. Oh, totally, totally, totally. Yeah. And look, I mean, a know, degree they're, they're, is not any kind of achievement at all. I mean, it's just a right. third party evaluation. The credential. At some point in your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some, somebody, uh, I think it was Brad, put up a post in the group 
a couple of days ago about you know the 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 perspective on you know if only i'll get a 160 on the lsat then i'll be happy and he said no 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 that's uh, happiness comes from within it has nothing to do with that and somebody posted no 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 it's not the 160 it's the opportunities that come with the 160 that'll make you happy and i said no nope, that's not it either guys it's not the opportunities from the 160 that make you happy you make you happy right the process is if you enjoy the process if you enjoy the journey if you enjoy doing the things that you're doing that makes you happy the doing opportunities you themselves are, are just opportunities you'll take them or you won't take them they'll they'll work or they won't work but your happiness has to do with you that's it yeah, yeah. you have to do what you love and those opportunities might be opportunities to do things you hate yeah right you know, I think what people need to understand is there's a huge difference between having these careers and having a life. And, uh, you know, people, the problem is that more people opt for the career than for the life. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's really the great tragedy. Maybe this is a first world problem. I don't know. You Absolutely know, all, it is. All these sorts of... <laughs> Um, well, it's, like, it's like a horror film. Like we, we're so privileged that we have to find ways to scare ourselves. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, with academics. We're so privileged that we have to find other ways to go compete and show off. Yeah. You know, John, along, along the lines of you were saying, um, focus on what you know, th there's a there's a very practical application of that, which is not just question by question, but also through the course of the test. Don't let questions that you don't understand prevent you from answering other questions. There are lots Good of questions. Point. On the or, e or even answering that question. Exactly. There are, you have 75 questions to answer. You've got, you know, two and a half hours to do it in. And you read a question that you don't understand. Fine. Do what you can. Move on to the next one. Give yourself permission to not understand stuff. That's okay. If you understood every question on the test, you would be a teacher or a tutor. Or you'd be writing. Now you'd have a different set of problems. Exactly. It would still be miserable. It's just miserable in a different way. Um, but give yourself permission to not understand stuff. That's fine. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. You know, I, I'm very much struck by this in this discussion about how, how much we're talking about, you know, the person, right, as opposed to the test. I mean, it's, you know, it's an amazing thing. Um, I'd like to add another, though, sort of lifeline principle. Okay, you know, the last one was Focus on what you do know. But here's another one. I mean, take small steps, okay? Focus on what you do know and take mm -hmm. small steps. Absolutely key here because if you try to do too much, you know, by expanding what you're doing, trying to do two or three things at once, all you're doing is guaranteeing you're going to make a mistake, right? So slow it down one small step at a time. As I used to put it, the smaller the step, the bigger the result. We've, we've got a couple of principles that, that key into this. One of them is that sort of third step in our process here, the strategy planning session. You have to walk out of any sort of third review of material that you've looked at with an action plan, right? What am I going to do the next time? It's not enough to just review the old stuff. You have to then take those lessons and figure out what they are and apply them. But we are very clear with people that your action plan can't be too big. It can't be 10 items. It can't be 15 items. It's got to be two or three very specific, very tangible things that have triggers 
and positive things to do when you have those triggers. When I see X or when I encounter Y, I will do. That's what it's got to be, but it's got to be small. And the reason it has to be small is that Jake, the, psych the psychologist, is coming out now. There, there's this um, phenomenon with students about the degree to which you get challenged and the chunk of the ch how big the chunk of challenge is. If the challenge is too small, right, then you had th then you experience this thing called anime, which is basically like I'm so bored, right, by my lack of challenge that I'm going to tune out. So if you don't give yourself anything to do, you're not actually going to apply yourself to change. But if the challenge is too big, then it's then it's what's called alienation. You get alienated by the work because it's too much for you to handle and you tune out and you run away from the work. So you have to provide yourself a challenge that is big enough that you're engaged by it, but not so big that it scares you. Right. And you've had that moderated for you for years by your teachers, by your parents, by whoever else that was sort of guiding you through the process of learning. But now it's your job. So you have to be mindful of that. Reminds me very much of, you know, when Warren Buffett was asked how much he was going to leave his children, how much money he said, you know, <laughs> enough so they can do anything, but not so much they can't do anything. It's exactly you know, right. That kind of moderation. A little bit really interesting. Let me, I'm sort of keeping notes, uh, you know, as we went through this, because we did title the seven principles. Um, I had no idea how the discussion was going to go, but as always, this has been pretty good. So here's what I think we've got, or as far as the principles. Principle one, get your own house in order permanently. All right. You know, hey, you know, you got to, worry about your sleeping, your health, your diet, you know, all this type of stuff. Agreed? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Principle two, I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, you know, your attitude largely determines your altitude, but you got to get a sense of, you know, who you are. Uh, you know, what, what degree of certainty do you require, you know, to navigate this test? Are you at one extreme or the other? Hey, I'll take anything or, you know, overly analytical. You know, I think that's the second. But the third was, which is part of this, is once you've figured out who you are, learn to play to your strengths for sure. Okay. Absolutely play to your strengths. But remember the importance of being flexible. Because if we go back to that Darwin principle, uh, you know, it's not the strong who, strongest who survive. It's not the most intelligent, but it's the ones who are most flexible and adaptable. So flexibility and adaptability is definitely important here. Principle four, which Jake is describing, is start with a broad brush, but I'll paraphrase, which I think what we sort of flushed out in the discussion was that is you know, start with being crystal clear on what you're being asked to do. Okay. And, you know, what the components of the argument may be. And, you know, don't jump in before you've, uh, you, before you've done that. Right. Agreed. Uh, principle number five, which was a bit of a surprise. Uh, certainly wouldn't have anticipated this one, but thank you for this, Jake. Okay. That patience is a virtue. It's a form of intelligence. And it's actually, I think, you know, as I listen to you talk about this, probably an essential characteristic to max out on your score, right? Um, 
Okay. And then I sort of threw into what I would call lifeline principles at the end, you know, recognizing that, you know, it's normal to be, uh, you know, seeing your life and future slip away from you under the pressures of the LSAT. But the way to always keep yourself pointed in the right direction is, I think, and these are important, uh, principle six is, for God's sake, there, there is stuff you know, and you should start by concentrating on that, all right? Because that's, you know, generally the key to uh, getting you pointed in the direction of the answer. And the second is, once you're pointed in the direction of the answer, we move to questions, principle seven. We want to take small steps because the smaller the step, the bigger the result. You know, imagine if you're climbing up some icy stairs, uh, you would not be taking those two or three at a time. You'd be going one step at a time with your hand on the rail, et cetera. So I think those are actually, you know, seven really, really good principles for, uh, you know, how to be an effective LSAT uh, prepper, how to be an effective LSAT test taker, and even more importantly, given that there's a difference between having a career and having a life, we probably should strive towards having good lives. These are probably seven good principles for life in general, wouldn't you think? Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. The the LSAT is a microcosm of life and a good LSAT student, you know, lives the right lifestyle to succeed in that in that world. So maybe we end with sort of a biconditional as goes LSAT, so goes life. And of course, as goes life, so goes LSAT. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, well, thank you. This has been a really, really interesting discussion. I think there was a lot of important ground covered that perhaps is too simple for the average mind. But, uh, you know, it's it's always easy to gloss over the simple, isn't it? I mean, my God, let's ignore what we know. And let's concentrate on the stuff we don't know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and 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 it's it. Let's gloss over the stuff we presume to know. Yeah, so that's, that's right. That's the critical part. Well, this has been great. Uh, you know, as always, uh, where do where do people get in touch with you for more more wisdom, more life skills? Uh, well, I'm Jake Feldman. You can find me at nexusacademics.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook and Reddit and wherever else. And uh, our joint product, uh, mine and Keith's, is triplereview.online, where you can also find us. And Keith? I'm trying to branch out everywhere. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, I just started some content uh, on TikTok. And I'm on Reddit now, so um, I'm not hard to find. But triplereview.online is the best thing to look at early in the process. Okay, and uh, I'm John Richardson. I'm the admin of the LSAT study group, and uh, this is just something I'm interested in. I'm not, not not doing tutoring and that sort of stuff anymore. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion, and... Um, Think about what the next one should be. I mean, we maybe we should announce it uh, in the group before we do the next podcast, but these are all really good things. So, subject to any final messages, some life messages you want to give to our listeners, we can call it for this week. Have, have some perspective. This is one piece of a much bigger puzzle. Uh, and take a breath because you need it. Keith, any final words or is that it? Oh, I love that one. You know, I'm a big fan of the Ratatouille movie. And when the critic comes in and orders some perspective, that's my favorite scene of the whole movie. (laughs) I like that movie. All right. 
All right, this has been great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.